This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. You're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. Our focus today is how to improve the productivity of our manufacturing operations by leveraging artificial intelligence. Our guest this week was with us a month and a half, two months ago, Remy Duquette, who is the Head of Innovation and Industrial AI at Maya HTT. Maya is an engineering and industrial AI services firm, and Remy's been with the company for some 20 years. In the last three or four years, as AI has begun to pick up in their practice and in the industry in general, there have been two main areas of focus where clients want to apply AI. One is improving quality. We covered that in our previous episode. If you didn't listen in on that one, there were a lot of fun examples. There was a use case about how French fries are made at scale and where AI is used in that process, which was shockingly surprising. So uh, an episode worth listening to. This episode is focused on productivity. The good thing about productivity, as Remy himself mentions, is that we often have good measures for determining how productive a day, a week, or a machine actually was. Most manufacturing plants have some good anchors and benchmarks for this. The question is, what parts of what workflows can artificial intelligence help improve that output? And this has to do with the performance of machines. This has to do with when and how materials are loaded in. And the best way to understand it is through concrete use cases. Thankfully, Remy has some direct hands-on experience, can talk about some of the challenges and opportunities of improving productivity with AI in manufacturing. And I hope as a listener, you get a lot out of those tangible use cases. This episode is brought to you by Maya HTT. They're the sponsor of this episode. If you're interested in reaching Emerge's global enterprise audience, then be sure to check out emerj.com slash ad1, that's ad like advertise, and then the number one to learn more not only about our sponsored podcasts and content options, but also to download our full media kit and see how we help other AI vendors reach their market at scale here through our show, through our newsletters, and through emerge.com, our millions of readers and listeners around the world. So that's emerj.com slash ad1 if you also want to learn more about sponsored content here at Emerge. Without further ado, let's fly into this episode, and I can't wait to get into the use cases. This is Remy Duquette with Maya HTT here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Remy, glad to have you back on the program. Last time we had chatted about the topic of improving quality in manufacturing when it comes to AI applications. Today, it's productivity. Both of these are extremely important. And as we get into use cases, which we always do here on the show... I want to tee things up with what leaders need to understand about ML for throughput and productivity improvement in manufacturing. What would you say are the the big topics leadership needs to grasp before they even start working on a first project? Well, first, uh, thank you for having me again, Dan. Always uh, a pleasure to to chat with you. uh, And the quality uh, uh, triggered a lot of interest. So I'm glad we talked now about productivity. Big time. Um, You know, if we look at productivity, most uh, leaders would already be tracking a ton of metrics in the manufacturing world, right? Whether it's the asset uptime and downtime, their overall equipment uh, effectiveness, OEE, and by the way, OEE is tracked in different ways and different in, you know, leaders of in manufacturing world would understand what I'm saying. But they, you know, a, a typical uh, starting point of OEE could be as low as, you know, 0.4 or 0.6 in, in terms of the uh, the effectiveness. And, and, you know, world leaders are kind of tailoring towards a, a 0.85 as a kind of a, just to give you the range of, of effectiveness we're talking about here in and the potential for increasing productivity. And that's why from a time series experts in, in, in manufacturing, applying AI in, uh, in manufacturing, we found that and with our clients uh, that this was a very 
promising place to, to start. And actually, you know, in the ML operations that we've uh, enabled and deployed in, in many sites, it actually turned out to be real, real good. But in the previous podcast, I, I did mention that, you know, you need to establish those metrics. And in this particular case of productivity type of ML AI improvement projects, we already have the starting point. Typically, most companies will have you know, their overall line effectiveness and they will understand where they oscillate. They may or may not understand all the cause and the, the levers that they have to make it go the right way <laughs> and avoid production downtime or certainly unplanned downtime and, you know, get the production right the first time, which is another big one that they're looking at uh, to not have as much rework uh, being done on, on the productivity in the shop floor. So these things are top of mind to executives, and that's why it's an easier place to start because the metrics are there. So applying ML and put ML ops, even in a POC type environment, even though most of the time I, I try not to talk about too much POC because I'd like more people to think about minimum viable operational projects, right? That they can deploy in real and understand how it moves the needle in the right way. So yeah, those are kind of the, Top of mind is to, you have the metrics today. So as a starting point with AI that will be, feel comfortable and easy to track for everyone, productivity is actually a great place to start and picking small projects that will move that dial, even if it's just a little bit, it moves the dial and then you understand what the technology AI is and, and where it can be applied and how people are gonna absorb it and adopt it in on the shop floor. Uh, and we have a ton of strategies there for for them. But uh, yeah, that's a good place to start. Got it. Yeah, super critical to say, you know, if we're going to, you know, see if AI works and try ourselves out some projects and, and aim to arrive at some of that genuine in-deployment valuable solutions, certainly helps if we're already measuring what we're doing. And when it comes to productivity and manufacturing, as you've said, we've got measures in place. So, you know, in many AI use cases, you know, let's say it's a uh, some random paperwork workflow in banking somewhere, we may not be literally using a timer to track how long it takes people to search through a certain document. So it, we may not know if we're faster or not. But with manufacturing, I think what you're saying, if I'm clarifying, is that, look, leaders, you know how this is being measured. So the ability to track AI's impact on moving those needles is kind of right there for you. So it might be a good place to start. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Awesome. So yes. with that being said, making this a little bit more concrete, I know there's a number of use cases you wanted to dive into. You folks are you know, involved in a number of projects and the quality and the throughput side of things when it comes to manufacturing. On the improvement of productivity, what's a concrete use case you can walk us through to see this technology kind of in our minds? Sure. Well, I mean, I will start with a a, a project that I, I spoke about last time in terms of the quality of it, but now I'll switch to another project that was more geared towards the fast tracking, the cooling time at the end of the manufacturing process. And we're looking a bit, you know, at lithium batteries. So when they're produced at the end of the, the, the manufacturing food chain, typically they'll have a certain time, a cool down time that they need. And most people think of, you know, we talked about time, time series last time in quite a, a bit of details, but a lot of people think of time series as, you know, you track temperature over time, right? And you track the voltage over time. What people typically don't recognize, and that's why us as engineers and, and experts in, in kind of understanding the physics behind these processes uh, can get in and be creative and make AI models work a lot better. In this particular case, if you look at a cooling process, really, you're looking at not just 
temperature over time or voltage over time, you're looking at a function, the voltage over, uh, as a function of temperature as it changes over time. And that's kind of subtle difference that, you know, many engineers would understand uh, if they're on the, this call on this podcast, but it's something that sometimes is a bit elusive to a lot of people. But when we track time series data, the important thing in AI and ML from the improving the productivity at the end and fast tracking that cooling time, the inputs that you need to feed it is really a function of two variables as they change with respect to each other over a period of time. And now you have the value and the knowledge and the wisdom in the data for your ML uh, model to actually work and shorten the, the cycle, the cooling cycle. In their case, you know, we, we were able to even cool it more than 50% uh, faster, right? That, that equates to, you know, sometimes eight, 10 hours of production time saved. So when you think of producing a mass load of, of lithium batteries over a certain period of time, saving eight, 10 hours on each battery saves you a ton and produces a lot more batteries at the end of uh, the year, right? So in those uh, cases, it's been really the complex relationship between time series that Maya has been able to, to leverage to you know, uh, make the productivity improvement as a specific case here of lithium batteries for electric cars. Got it, got it. Okay, so I'm going to try to put my finger on this and just make it more concrete for those of us not in the yeah. engineering and physics space. Many business listeners tuned in who might run a department, they can read a P&L, but uh, doing complex applied physics math is just not a part of their life. So if I'm hearing you correctly, I'm going to put it in, in kind of how I think this operates and then you can clarify for the listeners. It, it seems to me like we've got a number of complex factors that have to do with you know this cool down time, this ability to get ourselves, I imagine if our uptime extends for too long, we're going to start seeing things melt down, we're going to see breakages, we're going to see all kinds of horrible effects. So this cool down time, I imagine, has to do with getting the machines ready to produce in kind of the right way. It seems like there might have been older rules of thumb where maybe we're just measuring temperature or we're just waiting three hours or we're just doing whatever rule of thumb we have for cooling everything down. But what you're saying is, if we're able to track the time series data of a number of different factors and figure out which of those actually correlate to this machine being ready to produce again, we can detect those subtle relationships between voltage, temperature, et cetera. We can say, no, I know it's only been an hour and 45 minutes, but we're totally safe to start uh, producing more product here. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, I mean, in the end, the, the yeah, the, the cooling time reduction is is really for preparing in the in their particular case, you know, for for next stages. You're entirely right. So so you know, the faster you can start the next phase, the the faster the product goes out the door, and the more you produce in a year, right? So yeah, absolutely. Got it. And you know, it would seem to me, and and again, I haven't approached this problem hands on. Clearly, you know, we talked in our previous episode. And for those of you listeners who haven't listened to Remy's previous episode from about 45 days ago, please do go tune into that one on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever. But we, we talked a lot about the nature of the data and how challenging it is to line up time series data in the environments, uh, the, the heavy industry environments where you operate manufacturing. It seems to me like there's a part of my brain that says, is there a statistics way of doing this? Like we're, we're just kind of sampling voltage and and temperature and whatnot is do we need like deep neural networks to to do that per se or so long as we get the data is there a way to almost spreadsheet this thing you know or or have a simple set of a simple maybe more complex statistical model that could just pump this through do we need like an ongoing ml deployment here this is just what pops off of my head but but you let me know you know where 
AI was necessary or not necessary in that in that circumstance? Mm-hmm. So there are yeah levels of let's call it uh, AI complexity, sure. right? Like if you if you look at you know just a linear regression, it's a very simple thing. If you and before that, you're right. It you know just pure statistical kind of evaluation and advanced analytics in many cases solve the problem. And in many of those cases, though, to fast track the, the the production environment. There's a lot of data that goes into the process behavior at that point in time. So when you look at the cooling time and how the voltage you know, uh, responds as a function of, of decreasing temperature over time, those kinds of, of curves and, and functions are very complex in nature, right? And they're driven by many factors, not just a few, many and some, I mean, it, we didn't use the 10,000 you know, real-time telemetry uh, tanks that we could have used uh, during the entire process to get there. But you, you, know, you need a certain amount of real-time time series data on that battery that was produced to understand the behavior of it in the cooling time at the end of the food chain. And, and so uh, in this particular case, more advanced um, you know, machine learning models were very useful and were actually developed to capture that. But we always start at end with very simplistic approach. So we, we don't just throw the you know, neural network approach on day one. If, especially in a manufacturing environment where the response time, the real-time response time often is, is really critical, right, to influence control loops or push back data into a, a display so that a technician, the shop floor, can actually take a, an action on, on the data, is the time uh, response is critical to those processes because they run 24-7. So in, in many of those cases, simpler machine learning models are better in many cases. And we always start with a baseline of a simpler, whether it's a random forest or SVM machine, whatever it is yep. that we put on first, we don't throw the big you know, uh, behemoth uh, model uh, to, to start from. So we, we always start with the simplest model that we know will do the job, maybe not at 99% sure, you know, sure. accuracy, yeah, yeah. but you know, maybe it's going to start at 88%, but actually it's going to be able to be deployed within a couple of weeks, right? And then you can move and replace that model that, you know, we, we call it a less brave model, right? So there's a, you know, a, a um, how brave the model is, how we, we joke around at, at Maya. And we've developed a very systematic and, and step-by-step approach to then deliver a, the more complex models if they're needed, right? And and we have all the wherewithal and the, the, the horsepower to do it. Got it. Okay, yeah, because that was an instance where, you know, again, not I'm not as close to the physics here or the actual use of these applications, clearly, but it would seem as though, okay, if we were sampling the right stuff and we knew the relationships within these three things, when they do this, then this, eh, you know, how complicated do we have to be? But, but as you had said, there's a gradation. Sometimes things are more complicated. I, I think that I wouldn't be surprised. I actually haven't asked this question very frequently of vendor companies and service providers, but I wouldn't be surprised if that starting with a simpler model, seeing if we can shake it out and then leveling things up approach wasn't uh, something that a lot of other service providers would do too, because it makes a lot of logical sense. And I want to make sure we have time for another use case before we talk briefly about return on investment. Is there another good example for you that kind of makes this topic of improving productivity more concrete for people? Is there another one we could talk about? 
Well, a lot of people look at predictive maintenance, uh, you know, to avoid unplanned downtime as, as a key uh, component, right, for their uh, operations. And, uh, you know, if we look at a, an OEE type of, of problem where you're looking at a, a specific equipment or a stream of different equipment, uh, we've done a lot of, of things in, in batch manufacturing where these items need to be optimized and the signals of the wear and tear are pretty obvious in the data. I mean, it can be in the process data or in sensors from the machines and sometimes a combination of both are needed uh, to, to depict the onset of a problem very early on. And, and oftentimes people are thinking of, you know, very expensive, you know, vibration sensors and, and very, you know, kind of, uh, let's call it more complex way of getting to uh, preventive maintenance. In our case, we, we found very simple traces in the time series, you know, data from the process itself and the behavior change that we can see and depict. And if there's been a maintenance or a relatively maintenance program that was run on a machine, you can be pretty assured that, you know, that the machine is running properly. So if some things in the early days are starting to go awry, unless something was broken in the process, of the, you know, that's sometimes happened. But most of the time you'll see a process change and, and kind of be able to prevent issues before they, they start happening. So that's uh, an, an example of where we can leverage effectively time series type of, of data from both the machines and the uh, sensors that are temperature, pressure, you know, other types of sensors that are looking at the process itself or video cameras that we said, you know, video as a sensor or uh, even sometimes audio with some filters, right? Uh, we, I talked about, you know, expensive vibration sensors. Sometimes audio feeds are very good at, at picking up like little things that are going squeak, you know, a, a squealing wheel or, or something that, that's starting to be offset and misaligned can, can be picked up by simple audio feeds. Got it. Yeah, I think when people think about you know, telemetry data in manufacturing, audio is not the first sensor type that comes to mind, right? I mean, no, they, they probably no, think of heat, vibration, maybe even vision first before they think yeah. about audio. Yeah, and, and it's funny because, you know, people also, when they go on, on, on the shop floor, right, they're going to hear the machines and they're going to think like, there's no way that an audio feed here would be useful because there's so much noise around. And it's true, but it's noise that's pretty systematic. Right. And you can filter it out. And if there's a specific noise that is out of character for that environment, typically it's a pretty clear sign that something's going wrong. But anyway, it's, sometimes it's still not, it's too noisy and, and that's, that's fine. And we use other ways to, to get to that problem. Right. But often, yeah, people are not necessarily looking at the right sensory type of, of devices or combinations of time series data that can give them the answer. Uh, really quickly. And I think this is where, you know, Maya's a strength. That's where we help people figure those those complex things out in time series and in industrial manufacturing. It would seem to me like the choice of your sensor array on some level, now that there's some counterintuitive parts of this, but on some level, you would ask the experts who, you know, know the black magic of the shop floor, how do you know when something's going wrong, right? And they might yeah. say, well, if it ever smells like smoke, I tell you what, you know, that's a problem, you know, or, or if, uh, if it smells this certain way, that means a certain lubricant in these certain machines is too hot. And like, we know that that's an issue or they might talk about noise, right? Um, they might talk about other things is part of where you determine the sensor array. It must be a combination of talking to the people as well as maybe knowing the machine, because there might be some instances where machines can pick up on really low granularity amounts of data, whether it be 
audio, whether it be vision, that a human eye, human ear couldn't actually pick up on. So there's got to be counterintuitive examples where it's not how yeah. a human would diagnose, but it is how a machine would. But it would seem like the choice of audio would in part be by asking the folks that know how to fix the machine. Talk about how you make the decision to to build these unique sensor arrays because it's such a bespoke problem. It is. And I mean, you're, you're right that the first step is to sit down with the subject matter expert, whether of a specific machine or a specific process or, you know, plant directors that have lived through all the episodes of, of firefighting in their, in their plant and, you know, understand what they see here and think of, right, when, when a problem uh, occurred in, in the past. So we, we clearly go there first, and then we match it with our physics-based expertise of understanding time series data in multiple different eclectic environments where similar problems happen, right? And sometimes, as you mentioned, right, some human beings will be biased by certain things and certain sounds, and they may actually just know it's there, but they won't talk about it because it's so obvious to them, right? <laughs> but that's the obvious thing that we, we needed to know to be able to capture that problem, right, in the first place. So it's, it's a little bit of a catch-22 when we talk to experts, we're very uh, careful as to, you know, really trying to pry out of them everything, e even the normalcy of things, like when things are running normal, right? How do you notice that things are running normal? All right. And, and that kind of brings another types of discussion and typically triggers the, oh, yeah, and then this happened. And yeah, that's yeah, why yeah, I knew yeah. it was not normal. Right. But the normalcy is also very important. And, you know, there's this analogy in English speakers. Right. If you give them a paragraph where the, the first and the last letter of a word is kept, yeah. but the other letters are randomly, you know, shuffled, they will still be able to read the entire paragraph mm -hmm. without even thinking twice. Right. Yeah. And that's what you have for time series. Like people that are used to their process and their machines. That's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with people that can read that paragraph, even though the, the, you know, the time series is all over the place yeah. and dirty, right? <laughs> you're already doing anomaly detection just with hominid neural hardware, you know, and now you yep. just need to get it out of the hominid neural hardware yes. and put it into another system. A nice abstract way to frame a business problem. But yes, um, yes. all right. Well, we've got a minute or two to talk a little bit about how to think about return on investment. Again, one yep. of the upsides of, of thinking about throughput and productivity is that if we're, you know, a well-run manufacturing business, we're already measuring this on some level. But if you have parting advice for the manufacturing leaders about measuring ROI, how yep. would you put that in words? Well, so if you put that in words, so if you look at the OE example, right? OE really, when you, it boils down to it, it's the mean time between failures, right? So if you have six stoppages per hour, right? Each st stoppage has cost you roughly X, right? You were not being able to produce for 10 minutes your product. And if you had that 10 minutes of production time, you would have generated X more products and therefore X more you know, revenue. And really the upside is important here because that's what really everybody is looking for. The, you know, the cost cutting measures, yeah, okay, it may be some, in some cases important, but the biggest item in productivity and manufacturing is moving the upper side, right? The, the revenue side, that's where people pay most attention. So moving from, let's say, 10 minutes of downtime to only two stoppages instead of six per hour, right? That's a huge gain, 
So there's a huge value, to, and that's an easy thing to measure because you are measuring today that the, the, the average downtime that you have and the number of stoppages per hour that you have in your factory, like everybody is measuring it. And if you're not measuring it, then you have to sit down and have another discussion. But you know, mo most people are measuring those types of things. So that's one, one area to, to look at. Another one is we talked about uh, quality and defects last time, but one of the kind of low volume and high volume production series. So if you look at low volume, think of aircraft composite material panel, right? For the back of your aircraft kind of thing, right? And you're going to have a very low production, but it's very technical and detailed in nature. And you may have in any given part, you know, in the upwards of 300 defects that were generated by that robotic, whatever layup of, of your manufacturing elements. If you were to reduce that and the amount of manual rework that is associated to it, right? To move from, let's say in the case that uh, we, we've done where you go from 325 to 270 defects per part, may not be a lot of parts, but it's a lot of time saved in manual rework. And so those kinds of things, you can easily measure the value that you've added by doing this. And some of it, yeah, it's they look at the cost cutting and the cost savings of that, because that's how we're, for some weird reason, we're wired on cost and savings. But in the end, when you look at, well, you know what? We were able to produce two other of those big aircraft parts, and you know that they're not selling those for $5 a piece. Well, that is a huge gain for the company. And all that manual rework that had no value for the company has been turned into two additional parts that were sold and revenue uh, increased. Got it. So you would advocate pay attention to the top line in addition yes. to paying attention to the efficiencies and, and set out to measure both. Um, I like that advice. I do think that most enterprise leadership needs to be reminded that AI is not synonymous with automation. AI is not synonymous with efficiencies. AI is an unlocking of capability, and the measurements of ROI could be numerous. And so let's really yeah. think about which ones are most impactful. And I think you've put a good finishing nail on that point by reemphasizing this in the manufacturing context. So hopefully, for those of you who are listening in, no matter what industry you're in, that is a lesson worth going home with. And Remy, that is a great way to end an episode. Thank you so much for being able to join us again. Thank you so much, Dan. Always a pleasure to uh, chat with you. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Thank you for tuning all the way in on this one. We've covered a lot in manufacturing over the years, and some of you who are tuned in are already Emerge Plus members, which means you have access to our complete library of manufacturing use cases and, and use cases in other sectors as well. You can learn more about Emerge Plus at emerj.com slash p1. That's P as in plus and then the number one. Emerge Plus is our complete library of AI use cases. AI white papers and best practices. So whether you're trying to find the right fit for an AI project and determining what other global leading companies and cutting edge startups are doing, you can search by industry, you can search by business functions such as sales or marketing or customer service and discover what other folks like your company are up to. 
Uh, in addition to that, our best practice guides and infographics are helpful tools for AI project leaders. If you want to measure the ROI of AI, we have frameworks and infographics for that. If you want to construct a strategy and an AI roadmap, we have those too. If you want to pick the best AI project, we draw from our best of interviews, quote them directly, and have multiple frameworks for AI project selection, which might be helpful for anybody tuned in. So again, you can learn more about that in Emerge Plus. We also have a private Slack group, and I hope to have more of you join us in there. All of our Emerge Plus members are in our private Emerge Plus Slack. All of our Plus members are in our Emerge Plus Slack, where you can ask questions of other people who are like you, to learn more about what other folks are doing with their AI projects, or even find collaborators if that's what you're looking for. So you have the option of joining the community when you join Emerge Plus 2. It is our pride and joy in terms of our use cases and frameworks, and I hope it can be valuable for your business as well at cmerj.com slash p1. That's all for this episode. Big thanks to Remy for joining us again, and thank you to you for listening all the way through. I'll catch you next time here on the AI and Business Podcast.